Giving us a five-star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your ear holes, you know what to do. Give us a five-star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. You are listening to the last and final episode of Season 1 of A Son of a Pitch. Uh, in this episode, we have Nick Cummins from the Royals. Now, Nick's an amazing dude. He talks to us about growing up in the country, his creative philosophy, some of the early days in digital and starting an agency uh, well-known within Australia called Sputnik, uh, which since got sold to a Colombian fraudster and then getting fired from his job, starting another agency called the Royals, um, and also goes through the pitch segment in which he tells us how to sell more kangaroo uh, to more Australians. It's a great episode. Unfortunately for this one, uh, Max uh, had other things to do on the day, um, some more important things at hand, so he couldn't be with us. So it's mostly just me for <laughs> the start of the episode, but Max comes back in at the end for the pitch segment. If you like the show and you like the season so far, don't forget to give us a rating and a recommendation because we don't know if we want to come back for season two yet. Uh, we got to see how popular this thing is and whether or not it's worth keeping on going, you know, if you're getting a kick out of it. Um, we certainly do. Anyway, let's jump into the podcast. We hope you enjoy. Nick Cummins is a legend. Here we go. And... Nick Cummins, welcome back to another episode of the Son of a Pitch podcast. Thanks, mate. I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> um, sorry that we have to do this a second time. It seems to be a little bit of a theme with the podcast so far as we are learning uh, that we fuck things up. But uh, we are back here to go over old ground and, and to get what I thought was one of our best interviews back into the books uh, for the podcast at large. So uh, thank you for doing that and thank you for entertaining our naivety with regard to the audio engineering. You're welcome. Um, probably I'd say the answers may be better this time. So uh, <laughs> let's see how we go. Hey, we can both improve. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Now, last time we kicked off the conversation by talking to you a little bit about your past and you mentioned that you picked up your creative spirit from someone in your family and not in the city, out in the country. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think that, you know, often as creative people we sit down and we sort of go, well, how did I end up being a so-called creative? And, and I must say that I sort of believe that most people have creativity in them. It's not just something that you're born with. But... When I sort of look back and go, how did I end up here? I think it's been part of my journey. I grew up, um, you know, I'm third generation dairy farmer, and I grew up on a dairy farmer in South, you know, on a dairy farm in South Gippsland. And I think that, um, you know, a big part of advertising is problem solving. And I think that when I look at my father, who's since passed away, he was constantly problem solving. He was sort of like, well, what, what am I going to, how am I going to fix this with a bit of fencing wire and a shovel? Um, and I think I learnt that on the farm and, and that sort of creativity or that creative problem solving, I think, um, was, was learnt early. And I think um, a great example for me, you know, that I often sort of reference is, you know, I used to ride... Uh, a mile to school um, and it was very cold in (laughs) South Gippsland and it was dark in winter and it was a bit scary Um, and I rode to my primary school which had six kids in the whole school and my father I used to complain to my father about how cold it was and you know your hands get really cold on on the push bike handlebars and he basically um, went into the kitchen, uh, put the kettle on, went through the bottom drawer, got out a couple of wine bottle corks, and I was like, what the hell is he doing? 
and he marched outside to my push bike and I followed him and he basically poured the hot water down the handlebars and put a cork in each end. So I ended up with heated handlebars um, uh, riding to school in winter and I think that that sort of ingenuity and that sort of creativity um, is something that we, we all get excited about in advertising when we see people who are doing you know, different solutions um, to problems and um, so I think that's probably where I did get my my creative uh, spirit. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm kind of sad he didn't patent that technology because I think a lot of heated handlebars are going around on motorbikes today, um, which is, uh, I mean, yeah, just great thinking. Now, the, the other thing about kind of growing up on a farm is that you're often up very early in the morning and you get this work ethic that I think, yeah, creates a discipline um, over time. Is that something that, that you had to do was get up in the morning and, and milk the cows? And Yeah, totally. I had to sort of get up early and and I think you know, it's interesting, you know, interesting here to you, you say that because I often wonder whether that work ethic is a, a generational thing, but I think country people do have that. And and I think growing up on a farm too is you become entrepreneurial. And I think that you know you're not just working for a boss. You don't clock off. You know a farm is something that it's constantly needing to be worked on, and you know you have to be clever about how you can actually find a way of making a profit out of it, and all those sorts of things. So I think that that entrepreneurial spirit and hard work um, is is really powerful in your career. And I think that when you know when we meet people here at the Royals. And that might be potential um, people to join, you know, the team. I think I often look for that entrepreneurial spirit. I think one of the exciting thing about being in an independent agency is we're a bit like a farm. You know, we're just constantly going. This might be generational. This this business, um, and you look for the people who are sort of self-starters. Um, enjoy working, enjoy getting up early and going and doing it and and aren't sitting there waiting for someone to come up and ask them to do something. They're always thinking, right, what do I need to do next? How can I sort of evolve this business? And I think you're right. When we look at your career, this agency that you're running at the moment, the Royals, that's not your first one. Uh, you, you've, you have another one in your past and I'm just... Even before we get into Sputnik and, and everything that happened around that agency, um, were there any other businesses that you started when you were younger? Were you, were you always kind of, did you always have this entrepreneurial spirit? I think so, yeah. It's, um, there, were, there were quite a few, even to the point when I was at high school, I think someone told me, might have been one of my sisters, that there was a bit of a nickname going on around where I was called cow poo Cummins because um, <laughs> I used to uh, bag up cow manure uh, and sell it to, to people uh, a dollar a bag. It was quite a big bag uh, and sell that, um, you know, so that I could buy a, a big shiny new push bike. And, you right. know, and I, and I used to sell um, mushrooms on the side of the road when it was mushroom season on the farm. So I think, and a few other sorts of things. I think I've always loved that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and maybe that's why I did um, you know, start a couple of agencies and I carry around with me in, in the back of my mind three or four other business ideas that, you know, one day maybe in my retirement um, I'll uh, execute and try to bring to life. But I, I find it very exciting watching businesses and startups grow. It's, um, it's incredibly exciting. Cowpoo Cummins mustn't have been a great nickname for the girls back then. <laughs> no, it, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> hey, at least you'll uh, you'll have the money to be able to uh, to to bring them closer in, in later life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we always get ours back. Um, so yeah, I mean, like cow, from Cowpoo Cummins to the mushrooms thing to uh, what I kind of picked up as your first agency business, Sputnik. Um, can you tell us about how Sputnik kind of started and where that came from? Because this was like one of these agencies that was very early on in the, in the kind of digital entering advertising space, right? So what, what was that all about? Um, yeah, so he, I gave us a, a talk about this a while ago about starting your own uh, agency and why the world needs more advertising agencies. And I think that... One of the, of course, the world doesn't really need more advertising agencies and lots of things that the world needs more than advertising agencies. But I think that advertising agencies are places where great minds and creativity can come to solve problems. And I think when you look at the world, things like the environment, things like that, I get excited about the potential of people who come to work in advertising agencies and what they could do to make change. 
Um, so for me, I accidentally started um, my first agency called Sputnik. I, I basically got sacked um, back in 1999. Right. Um, and it came as a bit of a surprise, but in a sense, it set me on a new journey. And I looked around and there weren't many sort of advertising agencies that I was really keen to work at back then. So I had a friend, Tim Homewood, who was a geek. And he showed me this thing called the internet. And I was like, wow, this thing is, this thing's really amazing. It's really interesting. And back then in 1999 in Australia, you know, websites were either really beautiful because they were designed by graphic designers, but they really were terrible from a functional point of view um, or a branding point of view or a strategic point of view, or they were really, really ugly because they were built by coders um, and they were built really, really well, um, but they were ugly. And again, not much strategy and not much marketing. And I, I looked at this thing called the internet and thought, wow, I could take what I've learned at that stage with 10 years of experience in advertising and I could take what I'd learned in traditional advertising and put it on this thing called the internet. So I worked with my friend Tim and so we started this agency called Sputnik. Um, so we, I think we went into it with, with a really great mindset of like just doing what we thought was right, you know. It was kind of like the Wild West back then, you yeah. know. It was, it was yeah. awesome because if a client said make the logo bigger, you would go, oh, no, we can't do that because it'll break the website, you know, because it's coded in cold fusion and the client would go fine fine just leave <laughs> leave the logo the size it is yes um and so we built that up um you know to about 80 or 90 people and we had an office in melbourne and sydney and i did that for 10 years so that was my first agency that's awesome now i know that i've seen a couple of characters come out of that agency since and make quite a big deal um on the scene in advertising. One of the notable ones, especially in the strategy world, has been uh, Julian Cole, who I think used to work at Sputnik. Now, he always talks about kind of media being absolutely anywhere. Like, you can use anything as a a channel to form advertising. Um, What were the kinds of eccentric people that you brought into that agency back then and what were you looking for in staffing yeah it's it's a really interesting question we have had some pretty amazing people you know go on to have great careers you know another one that um, comes to mind is Sammy Needham who works on on Nike uh, in America at, at RGA and you know he was a young Tasmanian punk who you know <laughs> uh, came over to Melbourne and it was one of his first jobs and and he was a you know a great person um, within our within our business and I think the thing about that I get excited about independent agencies and it's the same with the Royals is that people can actually shape the business and I think those sorts of people like Julian and like Sammy and like so many others actually shaped the business you know they can have a really big impact so I think the sorts of people that we looked for again it's it's very similar to to the royals it's that entrepreneurial spirit and people who get it you know like I think especially back there in the early days it was like a sort of a weird club where like oh shit you get it you get this internet thing and you can code and and, and uh, hustle and build stuff and make stuff and create and film and edit and write stuff and you know it's finding those people who are um, you know, the modern thinkers, the modern creatives, uh, the mod- modern problem solvers. And I think they're the sorts of people that I suppose because we were one of the first creative digital shops in Australia, we attracted those sorts of people. So it was really awesome time because people would introduce themselves to us and we'd kind of collect people. Yeah, awesome. And uh, one of the other things that I've kind of seen you say in the press is that there's this kind of this feeling that the industry has lost the ethos or um, maybe philosophy of the older legends of the advertising scene from the the 60s and so on who went out and searched for insights in factories and did all of these amazing things. Were you as big on that back then and was that a big driving force of how you saw advertising and how you'd make an impact on it back then as it is now? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, it, it's a really inst- interesting observation. Um, you know, we we're here at the Royals, we have a, a philosophy of most interested um, and we sort of talk about being wanting to be the most interested agency in the world. And I think being interested in pop culture, interested in your clients' businesses, interested in new platforms, you know, the migration of people from Facebook to, to a new uh, platform and things like that, you have to be out in the world and you have to be away from your desk to actually really be learning and thinking about that sort of stuff. And I think about, I think his name was David Abbott, 
who did that fantastic ad in the 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, where there was a car hanging above him and he was a copywriter. And it was all about the strength. And he sort of, I think the story goes that he went out to the factory and the people working on the factory line said, we hate this car because it, it's take... And he said, why do you hate this car? And they said, well, it's got four times as many rivets in it as all the other cars we've made in the past So because it's much stronger. And, and so he picked that up because he was on the factory lines and that's what he used to sell the car. So I think that in today's world, it's, we, we have everything at our fingertips with you know, a web browser. Uh, we have so many sort of influence, influences coming into our inbox that we can look at. And it's very hard to um, get off that sort of drug of just staying at, at your laptop and getting all the influence you need. And I think there's nothing better than getting out into the world, into your client's business, um, uh, go to exhibitions, go and talk to people. I, I really personally truly believe in that and it's, it's something that um, I think my, my whole career I've, I've, I've had a passion for and a, and a, a belief in. Well, it's, it's kind of a weird historical irony, right? Because I, we were just talking about how the internet had so much promise back in the day and that it would draw you in and you could use it as this repository to find all of these inter interesting things that you, know, you could never have access to previously just because of geographical limitations and such. Um, are you telling people in your agency now to go out and get into the business and sit on the factory line and how do they go about asking you to be able to do that will they just not turn up to work today and be like hey nick i'm uh, i'm in the mercedes factory at the moment or like how does that actually work in practice i think look it's it's really easy to make it happen it's just about getting the desire um to go out and find that um, that little piece of information or that real understanding of a business. I think once people do it, they sort of they understand the power and the benefit of it. Being independent, it's very easy for me to say, no, of course you don't have to come into the office. If you're going to go and have a look at the factory line or go and talk to someone that's just bought the product or go to a dealer, as, as an example, for Mercedes and take a, take a ute for a test drive, that's fantastic and that's great. But again, it comes back to that entrepreneurial spirit is that people need to be self-motivating and, and, and driving themselves to do those sorts of things. Because in the early days, we used to surf the internet and that was a really interesting thing. As yeah. You probably remember, or you know, maybe you're too young, but when you first got on the internet, you, there would be links. It was all about links. So you'd be on one page, you'd look something up and there'd be a link and it'd take you to a totally different site. And you'd go, wow, this is amazing. There'd be another link and you'd end up somewhere totally different. So it was a little bit like exploring the world or going out into the world, but at the moment the internet is destination-based. So you, you type in a search query and it takes you to one page, you get your information and then you shut it down. Um, so you don't have that sort of that exploring um, that you have in real, real life um, anymore. Yeah, one of these things that I think about a lot and I'd be interested to hear your view on is that with the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams and the Googles of the world um, having control over the data that they serve us and how they serve that data, all of the different vectors that go into their algorithms to make sure that the thing they want us to see appears in front of us, um, how that's kind of changing what we do in advertising. Like we're kind of playing into the ontologies of big data as it were. And it, it, when you talk about exploration, I mean, that's totally right, right? I mean, you're just taking what is being fed to you. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I do. And it's kind of a little bit scary. I mean, I think marketers are really excited about it because, you know, we've spent quite a while explaining to them that we can really target these people and we can give them a certain uh, message. And that's, that is exciting and, and I suppose it stops waste. And it's also exciting because you, if you do it properly, you can tailor that conversation and really um, celebrate something with those people if you do it well. So, But then as society, it is very scary because, you know, I look at my kids, although they are probably exploring a lot of stuff online, God help me, <laughs> um, but, you know, the stuff that they get served is probably quite sort of insular and, you know, um, those social media platforms will have an algorithm and just send them the sort of stuff that um, they've seen before. So, yeah, I think, again, this is, I think we're going to see a backlash. I think we're going to see people disconnecting and exploring a little bit more. And you even see it in sort of certain events and things that are happening now that have got that sort of 
something really different or something you haven't experienced before. We all, as human beings, we, we all want and need that. Yeah, right. So people are going to start escaping the internet of their lives. I've noticed that people are starting to pull Facebook off their phones and things and only have it on the desktop browser and such. Um, is there another agency idea in that and will this be the third agency you come up with? Oh, look, there is, there is <laughs> so many agency ideas in that. But I think for me, you know, this... Um, I would like to think that if I ever do another business, and I could be here until I'm very, very old, um, I look forward to being that old guy like in uh, Mad Men who walks around without any shoes on and people go, who the hell's that guy? And um, they go, oh, just just humour him. And yeah. I think he helped start the business a long time ago. So I, I'm not sure whether I'll start another advertising agency, but I'd say that you know maybe one day there will be other businesses that I'd like to start. And I think... I think because one of the amazing things about being in advertising is you learn about people um, and you, you learn what people get excited about, what they get interested in and I think that that's a really powerful thing for any business or, or knowledge to have to start any business really. And now it's time for a break. Are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life? Perhaps you know more about XL formatting than your significant other's private parts, resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organizational food chain. You may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in National Geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam. Well, have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning boot camp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing? Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. Yeah. Back to... Sputnik just briefly I mean we've got to touch on the story of the selling the business to a white collar cream who ended up in a Colombian prison what was all that about how did you get embroiled in this uh, <laughs> in this guy's life and and how did how did the agency get sold well, what's the story well, you've done your research um, so I'd been at um, Sputnik for 10 years and I think I used the, the analogy that Starting a business is a bit like having uh, having a baby. You know, when you start a business, you can't take your eye off it um, for you know for a minute. You know, because you're worried about it, you got to protect it, you got to nurture it. And then then you know you, this this child ends up being about three, and you can take your eye off it for a little bit. You know, go and do the dishes or something like that. And and then after ten years for me in the agency, it was a bit like having a, a seventeen year old. Um, you know, and I loved them. Um, I could give them advice. Sometimes they'd listen to me, um, but they didn't really need me anymore. Maybe not 17, because I'm just thinking I've got a 17-year-old and he probably does, <laughs> he probably does still need me. Yeah. Maybe let's say it's a 23-year-old. Um, so after 10 years, it was a bit like having a 23-year-old. And I kind of went, uh, I feel like I'll, I'll do something sort of different. So just at that sort of time where I was having those sorts of thoughts, I was approached and someone said, would you like to sell your business? And I sort of said, well, I haven't been thinking about it, but, you know, let's, let's have a chat. And there was a really interesting company called Kit Digital. Um, so this would have been, um, you know, uh, well, it's, it was about 12, 12, 13 years ago now. But they had an interesting model which was um, going around and buying up a lot of rights to a lot of content and then selling it to websites uh, and then doing advertising within that content. And it was really back in the early days of content is king. And if you sort of thought about it, like they were going out and buying a whole heap of car content, then they would sell that to Ford, and then they would sell ads to other people within that content. And it kind of made a lot of sense. Um, so 
Kit Digital was owned by or started by or a majority share owned by a, a gentleman called Khalil Isaiah Tuzman, mm. um, which was the KIT of Kit Digital. And uh, Khalil was quite famous. He, he, when he was a young man in New York, did a, a website called GovWorks, which um, you can see a, um, a documentary on GovWorks uh, online. And he was built this amazing big sort of website where anything that you where you needed to interact with the um, local government in New York, you would go to GovWorks. So whether it's your rubbish or your permits or any of that sort of stuff. And he was looking to make a squillion, like a lot of people back there in the early you know dot com boom. But as they were making the documentary, um, the company went bust. So it was a really interesting journey. So he was a real hustler. He bought. Um, uh, our business and along with a lot of other businesses and it turns out that he was actually cooking the books uh, <laughs> he had a lot of investors that had put a lot of money into it and right. he was falsifying um, financial documents and reports and he escaped to south america got caught got put in a prison in bogota which you can imagine is horrendous mm. i think there is reports of him you know being raped and beaten up and, you know, horrendous. Nobody really deserves that kind of um, experience. But um, I think he's he's definitely out of um, that prison now. I think he's been extradited to America. But that was a real learning for me again in, you know, all the grown-up world of, of selling businesses. And I think that, you know, culturally, um, you know, in hindsight now, that was not great for our business. Um, but in the end of the day, he had a, a much worse time of it than what we did. <laughs> well, that's the understatement of the year for sure. Now, you must have been pretty young at this point, right? How old were you? Oh, geez, I can't remember how old I was. <laughs> I, was probably, I think I was probably, you know, early 30s Yeah. Um, you know, when I started um, that business. And I think that that's the thing is often... You know, advertising is a crazy world and you do, you can get retrenched and, you know, and sadly, sadly we've had to retrench people. You can get sacked. And I think it's one of those, it is a, you know, it's a tumultuous business, but I think that also um, that helps um, start new things. And, you know, I think that, you know, look at the bushfires that we're having in Queensland at the moment, absolutely horrendous, but, you know, in nature you need a bushfire um, to start new growth. And I think sometimes, you know, um, you have to have something like, for me, getting getting sacked um, made me sit down and go, right, shit, what do I do now? So I think, um, yeah, I was quite young, um, but now I'm old and grumpy and unemployable. So you know, <laughs> I'm, totally. I'm just lucky that I have, you know, a share in my own business. Well, it, it, so I, I often think about this and I think uh, Max and I have been talking about this quite recently because we're always going over agency ideas and, and things of that nature. And that that's you know, par for the course when you're young and you're kind of starting out. Um, but family and all of these types of things tends to be on the back of your mind and the risk of going out and starting another venture. Now, it's kind of written down that you, you put your house on the line to start the Royals, right? And did you have kids at the time? Uh, yeah, I did. And I think, you know, like I went home, uh, you know, I, I, I had a – I sold – uh, Sputnik, and then I went to DDB for three years, and, and I had a great time there. Really, really great um, agency and a great business. But I think after having my own business for ten years, I was itchy to do it again. So I came home to my wife and I said, "I think I'm going to start another agency, and and we'll probably have to sell the house to do it." And she went, "Oh fuck!" Here we go again. <laughs> but she was a Sydney girl, and she saw it as her opportunity to get back up to Sydney from Melbourne. And she said, "Right, you can do it, but you have to have an office by 2015, which is when our son started high school." So she thought that was a good year to start. So, so I uh, I pitched it to my business partners, and they were like, "Yep, great, let's do it. We'll 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 have a Sydney office by then." Um, so yeah, you 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 have to take those risks and they can be really scary and luckily I've got a very supportive wife but I think when I did my first business Sputnik I was really nervous about my peers like I was really nervous that it did if it didn't work you know my ego was going to be really damaged that I'd have to go back to big multinationals with my tail between my legs and they'd all go oh what a failure you know it didn't work and only last for a couple of years and the, and the longer I went and the more people I had sort of going, you know, good on you for starting a business and well done, I realised that the people that I really did respect and, and love 
even if I had failed after six months or a year or whatever it is, they still would have patted me on the back and gone, he started his own agency, you know, he did it, he went out. It's a bit like, you know, the prisoners that escape prison. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and they get caught and they get brought back. They don't, the other prisoners don't look at that person and go, you're a loser. They just yeah. go, you're amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you got out. Yeah. Even if it was for two days. Um, bizarre analogy. I don't know why I'm no, I drawing love it. an analogy. I love everything of... <laughs> about that analogy. So I think that it took me a while to get over that. And that's been the great thing about the Royals is when we started um, the Royals, I didn't have that because I, I knew, look, it was a big financial risk and it was a, it was a bit scary. But I kind of knew that even for me, for me, for my own ego, if we failed, that would be fine. People would still, you know, um, pat me on the back. And then you just got to work hard to sort of make sure that it financially is um, paying off. Well, this is a kind of weird cultural difference between Australia and the States, right? People often say people in the States celebrate failure because it is that notion of you had a go, you tried to do something. Um, but in Australia, we, we do like to kind of cut people down a lot when, when they, they don't make it or they fail or they didn't succeed. Um, do you know why that is? Or I have no idea why why that is. You know, and and I've I've spoken about it quite a bit. And you know, one of my favourite words is 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 hustle. And I think that for me, you know, I've even had to sort of wrestle with that myself. Is that confidence to go up to someone and go, "We're awesome. We're amazing. We should be your next agency." Because as Australians, we go, "Oh, we're okay. Yeah. You know, we're not too bad. We haven't fucked too much stuff up." You yeah. know, that's our that's our nature. Yeah. And I don't know where that comes from. And I, I think when you look at America, and I've you know worked with a lot of Americans, and and we have some working for us, there is a lovely there is a lovely confidence and passion. And I think if people are really passionate about um, their belief in their own skills. I think you can go too far and be a dickhead, but I think I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why we've come back, um, you know, from the wars or all those sorts of things that, you know, um, our our history, um, you know, why we've got this um, tall poppy syndrome. It's it's really interesting. Have you got any theories on it? Uh, I blame the Sydney 2000 Olympics. You know, ever since ever since we did so well in the in the Olympics, I think we've uh, our ego has just gone a little bit through the roof, and uh, we we like to cling to success. Um, but I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous pot shot. But uh, you know, off <laughs> it's the an interesting cuff, theory. There you go. There you go. Um, but so uh, the advice, the learnings for for the young people out there who are thinking about starting a business. I mean, would you just say go for it? Like, don't listen to the people out there. Just just have a crack. Yeah, I think I think de- definitely. I think it is. Um, you know, one of the things um, is you can start thinking about a business. You know, when you're em- employed by by someone else. You know. Um, so, you know, do a lot of planning, do a lot of thinking. It's what we did when we started the Royals. You know, we were probably, we were gainfully employed still. Sorry, DDB. But, <laughs> you know, after hours, you get together and chat about, you know, what kind of business you want to build, where you think that niche is, where you think your clients are going to come from, what kind of culture do you want to build. And then the rest is just, um, you know, day by day. You know, just jump in. Don't get a big office to start with, you know, um, and and build the business. And it's it's scary, but... If, if you use a good dose of common sense, it's, it's not that hard. Yeah. Well, that's one of the brilliant things that you notice when you walk into this office. And I'm just looking around at the moment and there is such an eclectic kind of mix of ephemera lying around. And is that just because it's been necessity and you've had to pick that stuff up to, uh, to kind of make it feel like home? Or? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I, get a lot, I, I, I love interior design and get a lot of shit for some of the stuff <laughs> that's uh, in the office from uh, quite a few of the staff and some of the partners. But I think that, you know, we are very lucky in advertising that, you know, we can wear what we want to wear. We're seen as being creative, and, and I mean everybody in the business, not just the creatives. Um, and we can work the hours that we want to work as long as we get the work done. And often, you know, we work very hard. But I think that's one of the luxuries of being um, in our game of advertising is we can have an environment that is fun and interesting and creative. And, and I think you, your environment should sort of make you feel creative. So I think that's why I probably bring in a lot of this crap is to sort of to create an interesting environment and and it, so it's not sort of clinical and it's and it's not too sort of cold 
Um, and also, I think, you know, you need to find a little nice little space. You need to find a, a, a nice um, vintage chair to nestle into and, and get your laptop out. So it's a big part of what I love about independent agencies is creating that culture. And I think the space is a huge part of that. Yeah. I heard previously... I'm not going to say who from because it might have been Nick himself, uh, that you guys play records uh, every now and then. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we have, a, we have one of our little um, cultural things, I think, is we have you know, Friday vinyl. So we have, we have two offices. We have an office in Melbourne and an office in Sydney, and we talk about uh, one egg, two yolks. So we very much operate as one agency. Uh, we have one P&L and um, the partners own um, equal shares in, in both offices. And our staff are, uh, you know, always sort of working on jobs in Sydney and in Melbourne and cross-pollinating. And one of the things that we do for that cross-pollination is um, someone uh, picks an album that's been influential in their life and they buy two copies. They, if, the, if they're in Melbourne, they'll ship one up to Sydney and vice versa if they're in Sydney. And, and on Friday afternoons, we throw that vinyl on and someone writes a long-winded email about, you know, the first concert they went to or what drug they were taking when they first listened to the <laughs> album or whatever it was. And, um, and we play, play that and we've, we've built up quite a formidable record collection through doing that over the last few years. Yeah, brilliant. And I, I guess that's kind of not just a fun thing to do, but you actually get to know the people that you work with, right? Which in some big organisations is really hard to get to know people on a, on a basis that deep. Yeah, it is. It does. It does do that. It's amazing how much you can tell about a person once you sort of um, learn their taste in music. And and the the ones that I find really exciting are the ones when someone plays a certain style of music. You know, like that quiet chick that's you know down in social media or whatever is you know playing sort of some you know full on sort of uh, hardcore sort of black dark you know goth <laughs> sort of screaming kind yeah. of and you're like wow yeah I, I had you pegged for something a little bit sort of softer um i love that when you sort of have those surprises in life from people yeah right i, I think it's an absolutely incredible idea now the agency is really built on culture and you get that feeling when you walk through the door can you tell me about uh kind of what can you sum up what the culture of the royals is Oh, that's that's a that's a tricky one. Um, I think you know we do talk about most interested, and mm. I think um, you know like and in a lot of agencies, you know, no dickhead policy. Um, we we have our values, which I think are sort of drawn from our culture, which is revelry, and I think that's you know that's about reveling in what you do, love what you do, do it the way that you do. If you're passionate about music, bring a lot, you know bring your instruments in write a track for the next TV ad that you're going to do, revel in, in what you do. Camaraderie is another one, and I think that that, um, you know, speaks for itself, and I think that we have got great camaraderie where everybody sort of looks after each other and has a lot of fun and um, have good friendships have been formed through the agency. And audacity is the other one, uh, which is about trying to make the work audacious and being audacious in what you do. So I think that our culture um, probably has a sort of a, a dollop of, of all of those three um, at, with a sort of, a, I suppose, an independent sort of spirit of, of most interested. And I think that when we look for people um, to join us, um, they're the sorts of personality traits that we look for. And again, that feeds back into our culture. And when we talk about most interested, we're not just talking about the record you're most interested in, but we're talking about kind of your passions outside of work and all of those things as well. And, you know, the job that you do, is, is that what you mean? Is interested is just a, a kind of a factor of your personality more than it is, you know, being interested in a particular lane? Yeah, I think, you know, you touched on it earlier when you talked about sort of, you know, 1960s advertising when people had their eyes open. You know, mm. they we, we, I suppose, are supposedly experts in human nature and humans. And I think that most interested for me is just your eyes open. You know, so if you're catching a bus home and you're looking at someone, you start questioning things like, why do they do that? Do it that way? What are their fears? What are their desires? You know, you, you read a lot of articles. You, 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 you're like a sponge. You take all this stuff in and you learn about people and you learn about things and you pop it into the back of your head and then you'll get a brief and you'll go, oh, 
I've, I've got a sense of that or all those sorts of people and in you, and every brief you get whether it's you're advertising to a 70 year old or a 17 year old you've got to be able to sort of know what's going on in in those people's lives you know what are they into what's happening what are what are they doing with their money have they got any money what are their fears and desires so I think most interested is yeah is definitely about when you're out in the world having your eyes open and just um, I suppose soaking up humanity and understanding it and of course things like style and influence and pop culture and you know what how what are the movements in art that are that are happening you know um, like I'm going to an art exhibition tonight and I'll probably in the back of my mind be programming and looking at things and there might be styles or things that'll just go into the back of my mind that one day, who knows, I, I may be able to reference for an ad or, or a thing that we're trying to create or build. Um, so yeah, it's, it's eyes open. So it, the kind of work that you come up with as a creative, do a lot of the insights that pop up that, I mean, as you're referring to now, are they just... They're serendipitous, so they, they just come to you like that, or do you have a process for your work? Oh, no, look, we've got amazing um, processes. We've got, um, you know, in- incredible strategists that spend a lot of time surfacing um, really great insights for us. Um, you know, we have we have a, a Dr. Paul, who is a, a data scientist uh, on staff. You know, he'll find, you know, data and information and, and sort through that, and there will be information or exciting insights. So I think when you have in, in our world where you have that mixture of, of data and creativity, so when you've got something that is irrefutable, you go, wow, that's really interesting. We've found something that you go, look at that. And then you go, now you sprinkle some creativity over the top of it. And you've got something really, you've got something really unique and powerful. So it's not about just the stuff that you have in the back of your mind, which everybody has. There is a there is a very sort of um, full-on process that we go through with a lot of science and a lot of intelligence to actually get to what we think is is an irrefutable solution. So this this kind of science and process, uh, I've heard you talk about the agency as if it had an operating system. Is this what you mean? Are these the updates that you're making to the system over time? I think so. Like when we talk about an operating system, we're probably talking about being an independent agency and the the this, the pace that the world is moving. So we, the our biggest challenge is not turning into just a big another big advertising agency. You mm. know, we you, it's very easy as humans and and myself. You get you you've been doing it for long enough. You get stuck in your ways. There's a certain way you do things. There's a, there's certain solutions that you leap to, and they may seem exciting and 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 clever and new, um, but they're but they're familiar. So I think as an operating system, constantly looking at our agency and going, are we working in the best way? Should we put be putting people together in different mixes of people? Should we um, be doing other things differently in the way that we operate that's going to make our work better and our solutions smarter? And it's just really, it's just a healthy fear of falling into that routine and just Mm. doing things the same way because that's human nature. You know, muscle memory of doing things the same way over and over and over is, is very appealing. But in, in a creative industry, you, you have to be very cautious of that. Only one agency I can think of off the top of my head has kept their soul as an independent throughout all of these years, and that's Wyden and Kennedy. And I'm just like, is that what kind of what the Royals is trying to be? Like you're trying to grow, but but kind of stay as fresh and as relevant as they have over the years, or are you going to do it differently? Is there going to be? Of course, like I think you speak to any creative person, and they'd they'd say, of course, they want to be like Wyden and Kennedy, and I have an incredible respect for them. I was reading about them just the other day and I think the the creative leads were there saying that if people come to them with something and they said if if it can be done and if it's on budget we don't want to see it um, and I thought that's that's incredible because you know um, most agencies would be like well it's got to be doable and it's got to be on on budget but they're mm. like well I don't want to even see that idea because it's not brave enough or it's not exciting enough um, I think that it's different for us in Australia we're a smaller market um, and I'm not making excuses because I think, you know, we, we have a real uh, desire to keep getting better and do more interesting work. But I think it is slightly different in Australia um, because we are a smaller market. Yeah. But, yeah, creativity at the heart of it and, and data and intelligence um, supporting and leading that. Can you tell me about some of the work, um, maybe some of the Mercedes stuff that might have come off the back of this, this spirit and, and revelry? 
Yeah, so I think one of the campaigns that we're proud of um, that we've done recently um, is Tough Conversations for Mercedes-Benz. So we were lucky enough to be given the opportunity to launch the new Mercedes-Benz Ute. Mercedes has never made a Ute before. Um, Utes, as you can imagine in Australia, are going through the roof and there's a real passion and desire for, for Utes. So um, bringing a luxury Ute to the Australian market was a really interesting challenge. And I think... Um, you know, they were rightly sort of nervous about um, it being seen as a princess princess ute. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you feel if you rock up to the work site and you're in a Merc ute? Um, and we looked at all of the ute advertising um, that's going around Australia, and it's it's a lot of it is very stereotypical. You know, it's the tough grunt, you know, slow motion uh, burnout in the work site with dust flinging up, dog in the back. <laughs> Um, maybe a cement mixer, yeah. you know, some guys get out with hard hats, um, maybe crossing a river, a bit of grunt. Um, and we sort of went, you know, this whole thing of tough, like every ute is about tough. And then we were like, well, here's this Mercedes-Benz ute. It's an amazing ute, beautiful ute, um, and it is genuinely tough. And we thought, what is tough in Australia? And it led us to this conversation about um, tough has evolved and so is a ute. And for me, I think one of the things that is in, is really enjoyable in what we do is if we can make the world a little bit better or try to make the world a little bit better about with what we do and, and um, today that we're, where we're, we're having this chat today and it's Are You OK Day. And I think that, you know, part of what we did in Tough Conversations is we, we got Henry Rollins in, who was a really interesting cat. Yes. He went around Australia and he interviewed a whole heap of different people about what is tough. Yeah. And we sort of... We, you know, we interviewed a gay farmer and, you know, we, he talked about homophobia and, and how tough that was. We, um, we interviewed Clover Moore about, you know, what it's like to be in politics as a woman and, and you know, the, the toughnesses of that. Um, we, we interviewed a, an amazing um, tradie who has got um, this fantastic breakfast that he does for lots of other tradies to try and stop uh, suicide because there's a lot of tradies that um, take their own lives because of cash flow and stress and and the time that's spent away from their family. So for me, um, I think that most interested principle of looking at people and going, well, there's a certain kind of person that's going to buy this ute. They're not the kind of like tear it up, rip it up, rah, kind of guys, but this we still need to have a conversation about tough. So what is that conversation? And that's where tough has evolved and so has the ute and tough conversations came from. It's just a lovely idea and it kind of feels benevolent, which a lot of advertising isn't, right? And actually, benevolence is something that I see in a lot of work coming from this agency. Um, And when I noticed it the most was when I was going through the list of agencies who had said that they wouldn't work on the No campaign and I saw pretty much every single member of the Royals on that list. And I'm just, is that part of kind of... The Royals' ethos is, it, you know, doing good because you've you actually mentioned it twice, um, kind of as as we've been speaking. You want to see more agencies that do better things for this world and solve better problems. Is is that driving you as much as the creative ambition? I think personally, for me, yes. You know, like I think um, the Say No to No campaign came from the Royals. Um, A very, very simple idea. Um, But the thing that was really exciting about that was it was an industry-driven initiative. There was lots of other agencies that helped us out with that. Uh, Just that, I suppose that first spark came from here, but it turned into a, a really powerful sort of campaign because of everybody that got involved. And I think... Um, for me, um, I'm, I'm really passionate about that because, again, I am excited about... I think that brands and agencies are going to be the people who are going to make the world better. I, I've, I'm losing my confidence with governments. Governments are too short-term focused. They have tight budgets, big brands, great brands who really stand for something, and we've seen lots of great campaigns globally, um, can actually create change. The thing that we have to be careful of and, you know, ourselves included is is just throwing an issue on a client and trying to be earnest you know you really have to make sure that the brand really truly believes it and that's when it's really powerful I think we're in an era of you know and you look at all the awards and all that earnest stuff and cause-based sort of marketing um, that brands are doing I think it's good but we have to be careful that it's not just skin deep you know that the brands really truly do believe it and one of the things that I think agencies should be doing more of is going deep diving into their clients and going 
what do you really want to fight for? What's your one thing? Um, talk to your staff, work it out, debate it, negotiate it, and pick one thing that you want to really try to change or make better in the world, and then use your brand and your power and your and your audience and and your customers to actually create that change. And I think that those companies will be the people in the future that actually do make that change. Look at the environment and the electric car. That's not governments. It's, it's, it's basically Tesla that will actually create, if we've got any chance with electric cars, it will be con- because of Elon Musk and because of Tesla, not because a particular government said, we're going to step in and we're going to make a law that all cars have to be electric by 2030. Mm. And I think that those sorts of shifts from brands... Um, even though that's his core product. But then I think, you know, you see sort of Nike coming into some very strong um, sort of statements about, um, you know, uh, inclusivity. And then you see some other great brands that are doing some amazing things um, sort of to, to make positive change in the world. And that gives me tingles, that kind of stuff. Because it's great economically. The brands make a lot more money. It comes from the heart and, it, and it's really, really true. So I think if it, if it is legit, I think it's incredibly powerful and it makes it much more exciting to come to work to do that sort of shit. <laughs> Absolutely. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what would be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy and solution. Woo! All right, and here is uh, the brief. And the brief is get the Australian public to stop skipping their skippy. Overall, eating kangaroo meat is more sustainable and better for the environment than most other meat consumption. As kangaroos are indigenous to the Australian environment, they can get by on eating a variety of indigenous scrub and do not rely on the production of grain. But for some bizarre reason, us Australians don't feel very good about eating the other half of our coat of arms. Whether it's the idea of TV favourite Skippy and the crosshairs of Barnaby Shotgun, or purely regular trips to the Taronga Zoo, there's just something getting in the way of Aussie's commitment to kangaroo as a meal choice. Nick, your task was to create a campaign idea that convinces Aussies of Skippy's place in the crosshairs of, a, of family dinner time, making kangaroo a, rout- a routine meal in every Australian's weekly repertoire. Uh, how'd you go? <laughs> that's a you know like i've had some really interesting briefs in my time and uh that's a credit to you that's this is an interesting one i think it, you know the first thing that popped into my head when i i haven't given it much thought but i've given it a bit of thought and sure. the first thing that popped into my head was when i grew up and i've mentioned to you earlier i grew up on a dairy farm when i grew up um there were a few different meat groups um that we 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 would eat and we i would have chicken um you know i would have um pork and i would have beef um and i would have ornithorhynchus and i grew up with this what's ornithorhynchus i grew up with a, a belief that there was chicken pork fish beef ornithorhynchus and it wasn't until I got sort of later in life and, you know, talked to friends at high school or things like that about ornithorhynchus that I realised there was no such thing. And what, <laughs> what ornithorhynchus was, was it was rabbit. Oh, <laughs> true. Growing up on a dairy farm, my father would sometimes shoot a rabbit and we would have it for dinner. Now, I think, being a clever man, he realised that if he told myself and my two sisters that we were having rabbit for dinner, that we would balk, that we were like, nah, I'm, I'm not eating that, right? Um, and I think it be, it's similar to this brief, is the only reason that he called it ornithorhynchus is because he knew if he called it rabbit, we wouldn't eat it. And I think with your brief, part of the problem is, is the fact that we call it kangaroo and then everybody goes it's a kangaroo i'm eating a kangaroo so i think it sort of made me think right well should we change the name you know and and it should it's you know i saw a billboard the other day talking about wagyu and i was like is it should it be wagyu um you know (laughs) or do we find a new name and then people are um you know more likely to eat it but that was kind of a ridiculous idea but i think it was 
it did start me thinking about what is the problem here. And I think that the challenge with, with kangaroo is the fact that people go, well, it's kangaroo, um, and I don't want to try it. And when you do try it, it's, it's, it's delicious. And, yeah. you know, we know that it's got 2% fat, so that it's actually really good for you. It's, as you noted, noted in your brief, it's great for the environment. Um, so I think that got me sort of thinking, and I went, all right, what's a simple construct? And I thought, it's a sampling. To me, it's a sampling brief. It's like, how do I get people to eat kangaroo and actually go, shit, it's, it's really lovely, it's delicious. And then I thought, well, how do you... How do you serve it to people to get a broad range of sampling? And I think that, you know, there's a there's an upper-class market that has probably had it at restaurants and tried it, and you get it like a little steak. It's a little thin bit of mm. meat, and it's just there as a piece of meat. And I thought that's even a little bit con- uh, confrontational for people, and it's a little bit like, how do you do that? And then I thought, well, what about if you put it in a hamburger? And I thought... That's a way that it, you know, it will be tasty. It doesn't look gross. It's a patty. You know, you can eat it as a beautiful hamburger and go, that was delicious. It was kangaroo. I like kangaroo. I'll eat more of it. So it led me to the idea of how you do that. And then I thought, okay, let's do a promotion and we'll do it with Deliveroo. <laughs> yes. Love it. What a tie-in. <laughs> why, why, why wouldn't you? So we go to Deliveroo. And let's say there's got to be a World Environment Month. I don't know what month it is, but there's got to be one. Yeah. Um, and we have a we start a conversation about the positive effects of farming kangaroo for the environment, mm-hmm. and we we know that that's an interesting story. And then we work with Hungry Jacks because what's just happened is Uber Eats has gone and starting to deliver McDonald's, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that Hungry Jacks is panicking a bit about that. So we go well, let's put Deliveroo and Hungry Jacks together for the environment month and for every time that you order a hamburger on that month from Hungry Jack's, you get a free um, kangaroo burger. So you get a two for one offer, right? Mm -hmm. So you have your normal burger and then you've got a second burger and you can taste it and you can sample it and it's delicious and it's not that expensive to make a hamburger. You have your, you taste your kangaroo and then you change your um, point of view on what kangaroos like thanks to Deliveroo and Hungry Jack's. That is absolutely That's brilliant. I think that would work. Absolutely. I think we should like be running this right now. So we're going to put this into a deck and release it with the, uh, with the episode, with your permission, of course. Of course. Awesome. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah, Get make some money. Hungry Jack's involved. You guys can make it happen. Give me a credit somewhere. <laughs> Give me a credit somewhere in the back of the deck, and I'll be happy. Absolutely. It's oh. something I Paul Arden, who is a great old advertising genius from from London, once said. You've got to give, let your ideas go, give them away. Mm. Yeah. So if you guys get that up, or anybody else listening gets it up, awesome, love Bri- it, brilliant. Yeah, I like the environmental angle because cows have copped a bit of flack lately for producing a lot of methane, and something like a quarter of the methane in the atmosphere is from cow farts so yeah so in the limited reading that i've done is that um you know kangaroos obviously don't have that impact the problem that we do have is that if if everybody did start eating kangaroo we don't have enough of them to be honest Mm. um, you know i think they do a 20 percent cull they only take the the males which is good because you know they don't have the problems with the joeys being left and all that sort of stuff um, but that's, you know, that's not a problem. It's, 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 uh, it wasn't part of the brief. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you, have you eaten kangaroo yourself? I have. It's, it's I've eaten a lot of different stuff and yeah, kangaroos easy. I, the, the worst thing I've ever had is I worked on a ranch in Texas as a, as a young guy traveling and I was helping them brand the cattle, which was quite bizarre because it just smelt like barbecued steak because you oh. were getting a hot branding on and pushing it into the, to the animal. Um, but they were castrating them at the same time and they would cook them up on the branding iron fire. They called them prairie oysters. Oh. And, um, <laughs> that, was, that was a rite of passage that whilst you were out there working in the ranch in Texas, you had to eat prairie oysters and it was kind of odd. It was a little bit like the mixture between calamari and a chocolate eclair. Oh. <laughs> There's a, another one of those visceral things. Yeah. <laughs> I think the next brief has to be uh, how do you get people to eat prairie oysters? Prairie oysters is definitely a brief. My God. Yeah, kangaroo's easy. Yeah, that's <laughs> another challenge all in itself. Well, thank you, Nick, for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you taking the time, especially with such uh, young kids like us who don't really know what we're doing, but uh, on that journey. Mm. Um, yeah, if, if you could uh, tell anyone in the world out there 
anything that you wouldn't be able to tell them on another podcast, what would it be? Oh, man, that's, that's a tricky... If I could tell them anything that I couldn't tell them on another podcast, um, I can't answer that one. Brilliant. Just keep your mouth is, shut. Is there, anything you, the... is there anything you want to plug on your end? No. No? No? All, All good. good. All good. Cool. We'll wrap it up. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, boys. Thank you. That was... You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince. And my name is Max. And we're both planners living in Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcastsoap at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Chillin'.